This episode of GT the Podcast is supported by Alcon. This special episode of GT the Podcast is brought to you by Santin Pharmaceuticals Company. Microshunt is CE marked in Europe and approved in Canada by Health Canada, marketed under the trademarked brand name Preserflow. It is not yet approved in the United States and is pending PMA approval from the U.S. FDA. Hey everyone, it's Ike Ahmed. I'm pleased to introduce our podcast on Microsoft Pearl's Lessons Learned. With me here today, I have two surgeons who've had a lot of experience in the world uh, on the Microshunt uh, over the last few years. We have Tiziana De Francesco, who's from Fortaleza, Brazil, and we have George Durr from Montreal, Canada. And between all three of us, we hope to share with you some of our lessons that we've learned over the last few years on success and pearls with the Microshunt, both preoperative, surgical intraoperative pearls, as well as postoperative uh, suggestions as well. So to kick this off, I want to speak about patient selection. And Tissy, for you, who is the ideal patient for the Microshunt? So like, I believe the ideal patient for the Microshunt is a patient with open angioglaucoma with IOP above target despite maximal therapy and that the patients need uh, an IOP in low in the IOP target on low teams. I think this would be the our target patient. I agree, Tissy. I think I think the one thing we've seen uh, based on publications here is, is that I think the ability to reach a pressure pretty consistently down to around 13, 12. And I think that's the kind of target we're looking for. And so ideally somebody who needs that, which is often patients who have moderate to severe glaucoma and progressive glaucoma as well. Um, you know, George, um, there's certain things that we think about anatomically when it comes to patient selection. What type of things do you look for in examination, specifically in planning for the microshunt? Yeah, so it's really important to look for uh, a bunch of different things and cues on the exam, including conjunctival uh, mobility, the redness preoperatively, uh, where we want to implant the, uh, the microshunt, whether uh, we're, we're going to try to aim uh, typically more supranasally, but if there's something, some scarring or some other uh, area that's a little bit um, less uh, amenable to, to perfect surgery, then we want to try to aim for that. And gonioscopy is really important, making sure if you have an open angle or a closed angle. So this is something that really needs to be, uh, uh, to be checked uh, preoperatively. And finally, um, eyes that are deep, make it a little bit more difficult for implantation. For any glaucoma surgery, it's, it's more challenging, but this is something to really consider preoperatively to, to try to account for that when you're in surgery. It's a good point, George. I like that point because, you know, we do like to work uh, somewhat deeper into the fornix when we do our dissections. And so when it's a deep set eye or a difficult access, it's good to just know that ahead of time, plan what you can do, and we'll share some pearls with regards to positioning. So Tissy, you know, we often talk about the importance of conjunctival optimization, how to prepare the patient before microsund implantation. What are your pearls on this area? Yeah, I think this is very important to have like a, a, a surgical success. And one of the steps that we usually focus is to start the patient on steroids four times a day, one week before surgery. And also if we notice that the patient has a lot of conjunctival redness, we consider to stop some of the glaucoma drops and we start the patients on um, acetazolamide, oral acetazolamide to decrease conjunctival redness and improve the ocular surface. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a huge believer in that, Tissy. I hate operating an eye that's red. And, and even microscopically, subclinically, there is likely to be some subclinical inflammation, as we know from various studies. So I really like the idea of prepping the eye by treating with anti-inflammatory medications, lid you know, margin treatment if necessary as needed. And yeah, I think stopping glaucoma medications if they're, if they're potentially toxic or irritating and using oral uh, CIs is great. So I to totally agree uh, with those points. I think, I think we've summarized nicely some of the preoperative considerations uh, for the microshunt to optimize results. I wouldn't minimize that uh, because we often focus on surgery, but preoperative prep and optimization and selection are very important. So listen, let's move forward and talk in terms of talks about surgery, because this is a clinic everybody wants to hear about. There's no doubt that, you know, there's a variety of different approaches. Uh, I'm going to be, uh, we're going to be talking a bit about our, our own opinions and our own experience, of course. Um, the U.S. clinical trial had, had specifically a protocol, and we'll describe it, and hopefully add a bit of flavor based on our own uh, experience. So I want to start off with George. Um, an area that I think isn't often discussed is how do you approach the surgical site? I wonder if you can share some pearls about optimizing exposure, which I think uh, is really critical to get the right placement here. Yeah, this is, this is so key in getting the proper positioning to be able to implant the device safely and consistently. Um, putting in attraction sutures is, is really important to be able to get the proper um, area exposed. Uh, you wanna make sure that, um, that your head is positioned in a way that's a little bit tilted towards the surgeon. Find having a little bit more of the head towards us uh, helps us get a better, uh, better view of that, uh, that area where we can where implant the microshunt. Uh, and then you got to think whether you're going to go supratemporal or supranasal. It's better to avoid going directly at noon uh, to, to avoid getting in that uh, superior rectus uh, muscle. But just going either around one o'clock or, or 11 o'clock may be a little bit um, easier for your exposure and your, your, your further, uh, uh, further risk of scarring down the road. George, you've, you've hit a lot of pearls. I, I completely agree with optimizing uh, the visualization. I think, you know, I used to start sitting at 12 o'clock when I started with microshine implantation. And I very quickly moved to temporal, sitting temporal like I do for FACO. I find that it allows me to look directly into the quadrant, typically supranasally that I'm going to be working in. I also think that, you know, having the patient's chin up, meaning their head, you know, positioned up, allows me to look into that quadrant. I mean, visibility is so important to see where we're dissecting, and see where microsund implantation is placed. So yeah, I think that that is a great way to start surgical pearls. Of course, the first step, Tissy, is how to open conjunctiva and tenons. I wonder if you can share your pearls on that aspect of the procedure. So uh, when we're doing this microshund surgery, we usually perform a small two clock hours conjunctival peritomy in either the supranasal quadrant or supratemporal quadrant. And we also perform one nasal radial incision so we can have a better view, a better posterior view. It's also very, very important. It's one of the most, uh, it's one of the key steps of the surgery is how to handle the tenon. So we have to handle the tenon very, very gentle to disinsert the tenon of the sclera and the conjunctiva and um, divide the two layers, divide the tenon from the, from the conjunctiva. Yeah, I'm glad you talked about tenons because I, I, you know, not to be provocative, but I think tenons management to me is one of the most important pearls for success with this procedure. And I, I like you, I like to kind of open conch first and then 
uh, uh, disinsert tenons, which is typically a millimeter and a half back from the limbus, disinsert it and then dissect bluntly, being mindful that there still may be some adhesions posteriorly. And so be careful to lift it all up anteriorly and then one can dissect bluntly posteriorly. And a pretty posterior dissection is important. And as you said, make it, make it, I don't think there's anything wrong making a good size peritomy. Uh, I think it allows us good access and good visibility. I'm not a fan of making a very small peritomy and then being handcuffed by having a very difficult view. So I think those are, uh, those are important points to sort of emphasize here. And I, and like, like you said, I think a foreign based peritomy is, is ideal. We don't want to have an, have an incision posteriorly where it could scar over. Yeah. I think, I think talking about that tenons handling is particularly key because it's, it's so hard to get caught while you're, while you're dissecting and not being sure where tenons is exactly and grabbing and snagging tenons and, and, and then you're making it uh, dis, you know, small little strands of tenons. It, it's hard to really get that proper grab and, and stay with that grab of tenons. It gets you to control the eye better to get you in the proper position. Uh, and it really gears you up for success in the long run in, uh, in doing these procedures. Yeah. Agreed. And I, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of debate and I think, you know, we've, we've published on this topic as well about mitomycin. I wonder, George, if you can just give us some thoughts about mitomycin and, you know, dosing, how, how it's applied. Uh, you know, we, we know this, maybe you can review what the study, the, the U S study used, and then maybe you can talk about, you know, your experience. Yeah. So, so the study was using a, a dose of 0.2 milligrams per uh, milliliters with the sponges and, um, they uh, they had those for uh, for uh, two minutes if I'm not mistaken during the the the, the on label study. Uh, in our experience, we kind of changed uh, the the dosage a little bit. We have a couple of publications that came out, uh, uh, one in AJO and the other in BJO, uh, looking at uh, higher doses of mitomycin, 0.4 milligrams per cc, uh, and uh, putting them on sponges and even injecting a, a, an extra dose of mitomycin at the end. Uh, the sponges were for two minutes as well. Um, and I think, you know, making sure that those, uh, that those, that those um, sponges are in the proper position, spreading out as much as possible posteriorly. So we promote that more posterior flow for the microshunt uh, are key steps in the way that we, uh, we address um, uh, scarring and healing. And, and we know that uh, whenever there's a bleb, there's going to be scarring uh, down the road. So we have to try to, 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 to de de decrease the, um, the potential of that happening and having mitomycin in the right uh, spot is, is really key. Yeah, George, you know, our, our studies, again, you know, referencing both virgin and refractory eyes showed that when we increased the mitomycin beyond 0.2, that was one of the biggest factors for success. And so we have really moved completely away from 0.2 and really, really only use 0.4 milligrams per cc or higher with sponges and, and, and even injection, as we've talked about, which of course is off-label. Tissy, I think, I think the, you know, uh, the, the next step that's critical is the scleral tunnel creation. Um, and uh, I wonder if you can maybe just review a couple of different techniques and, and the principles behind that. Yeah, so we use, we usually perform the scleral tunnel three millimeters from the blue zone. And there are like two different ways to perform this scleral tunnel. One way is to start um, to perform this claritunnel with a micro knife until like two millimeters close to the, to the perform two millimeters of the claritunnel with the micro knife and then get, get into the AC with a 25 gauge needle. And other way is to use the DSK micro knife and we can use this knife to both 
create the scleral tunnel and also get into the AC. Yeah, I think um, one of the important points is, is that we want to, of course, end up with the shunt, you know, in the AC and the iris plane, ideally entering the anterior chamber at the anterior trabecular meshwork. Um, to do that, though, of course, we can't start in that plane when we're outside. So we basically kind of tunnel in the sclera. I like to say a 20 degree, you know, downward trajectory for two millimeters. And then at that point, we stop and then we go to the uh, 25 gauge needle. And with that needle, we want to basically make sure we're entering iris plane. People use different landmarks. I think, you know, by going three millimeters back from the limbus, that you know you're going to tunnel forward two millimeters, that leaves you at the end of the blue zone, which is basically where you want to be. Um, and I think that knowing where the limbus is and the blue zone are two important landmarks. And I, I really recommend uh, some wet lab experience uh, when starting this procedure to just appreciate the different angulations that you have to achieve. It's very much like doing a, a tube shunt where we basically use a needle to, to, to enter the eye from a three millimeter tunnel and we have to change the direction. I also want to make one final point, which I think is important, is we don't want to make this two planes too uh, angled. In other words, uh, we don't want to pinch the implant. And so a more gradual plane, I think, is ideal. And uh, I think going two millimeters forward, but making sure you're not totally spiral plane, you're kind of going a little deeper as you're progressing, 20 degrees angle down, then stop, and then make sure you enter iris plane by lifting up the heel and, and putting the tip at the iris plane using counter-traction with, um, you know, traction suture is helpful. So uh, I think those are, those are important points. And as Tissy said, there's two different ways that we can, that one can use uh, to do it right. This episode of GT, the podcast is supported by Alcon. And, and you know, like if you want to try to, if, if you're not happy with the first uh, tunnel that you've created, you can just create another one uh, next to it. Uh, in our experience, um, we haven't found a lot of leaks from those first tunnels. So it, it's not a bad idea if you're putting the implant in and, and saying, hey, this is like pointing up towards the, uh, the cornea or too much towards the iris, then you want to reposition it by, by creating another tunnel altogether. Great point. Okay. Um, next point, you know, we do want to make sure that we assess for flow. And that to me is one of the points where I, I do look for um, you know, flow from the tube. George, can you kind of go into a little bit more what, what, what you like to do to assess that? Yeah, so it's really important to, to create, first of all, uh, a paracentesis incision with, that, uh, with one of the micro knives that's, uh, that's provided. And then to hyperinflate the anterior chamber. So get your pressure really high and then look at the flow through the device. There should be a steady and quick percolation of, of uh, BSS basically through the, uh, the tip of the device. And then bring the pressure all the way down, single digits, and see, and there still should be flow, but it should be a lot slower. If you're noticing a big difference in the flow rate, especially at high pressures, and you're, seeing, you're thinking, oh, this is going slower than what I'm expecting, then you have to think of all sorts of different causes that could be blocking the microshunt. It could be a pinching of the device. It could be pigment within the lumen. Is it iris that's obstructing the implant? You really have to, to, to go through your differential uh, examine the implant, sometimes just remove it all the way, uh, all the way out and look at it, make sure that there's nothing within the lumen. And you can even flush it with a, a 23 gauge cannula, thin wall cannula. You go around the, uh, the, uh, the tip of the, uh, of the implant that's out on the, uh, on the conge, and you just forcefully inject uh, BSS through the, the implant. And it really allows for that flow to be reestablished. Sometimes just a, a simple flush on the operating table uh, can, can relieve any obstruction. 
Yeah, I, I, and that's why I think it's nice to have a paracentesis made um, where you can inject BSS um, into the eye and assess for, for the flow. Um, we like to kind of increase the pressure just into the mid to high 20s. And I totally, as George said, I mean, look for like a beep, 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 like a steady, steady flow that comes out of that tube, which can be, you know, either directly or can basically, uh, you know, uh, go along the shaft of the implant and then do the same thing when it's low. And if you're not, if you don't see that, I recommend to really, as George said, make sure that you flush the tube or check for any obstruction. So we're happy now. We've got a good placement here. Um, you, you talked about how you open congentina. Tissy, how do, how do you close uh, the tissue? So I use, we usually perform a two-step bone closure. First, uh, suture the tenon. And before suturing the tenon, it's very important. It's, uh, it's important to make sure that the implant is free and is not, is not stuck in tenon. And after suturing the tenon with two interrupted sutures, we also suture the conjunctiva with two wing sutures. And then we, we also do one interrupted suture in the area that we did the radio incision. Yeah, I think that's exactly as you said. And I think, you know, um, that radial helps us to visualize to make sure when tenons is being drawn forward, um, that it's not, you know, caught on the implant. And you want to tuck that implant, uh, as they say, tuck it, under, tuck it under the sheets there without getting trapped. And that visualization is so helpful to evaluate for that. Sometimes there's a fold of tenons as you bring it forward to identify and grab and bring it forward to make sure it's not catching the implant. I think that's you know, uh, important to ensure free flow and reducing the distal resistance. And uh, I love the two-layer closure, as you said, Tissy. We typically use uh, nano-vicral, but you can use whatever your preference is. Okay, great. Listen, um, that was fantastic to review the surgical pros. There's obviously a lot more to it, but I think Tissy and George have really hit the highlights. Let's quickly go through some post-operative uh, care pearls. George, what's a typical course uh, and expectation for pressure uh, and visual recovery in the first few months after surgery? So uh, typically the uh, post-op day one pressures are about six to eight. At about four to five days, you get a pressure between six and 10. At week one or two, you're about between eight and 12. And then from post-op month one to about post-op month uh, three, you're about between 10 and 12, sometimes even in the single digits. Uh, and it typically stays around that course uh, during the first year. And this is what we found in our in our publication um, in the standalone study in the refractory study. Um, and the visual recovery is, is quite fast. Uh, within the first few days, the patients typically have a, a good recuperation of their vision and um, don't have a lot of uh, you know, visual uh, difficulties afterwards. Thanks, George. Tissy, uh, what's a typical post-operative regimen medically? In the post-op, we usually use the steroid every, every two hours for the first week. And then we taper down to four times a day. We use four times a day for the first month. And then we're tapering down every week. And also in the post-op, we use NSAIDs. But it's very important to make sure that the patient does not have any leakage any cytal. Because if the patient has have any leakage, we need to hold on this, the, the NSAIDs and then to restart later on. Yeah, I mean, like we spoke about preoperatively, controlling inflammation is so important to postoperative success and prevention of scar formation. George, what about the role of uh, prophylactic antifibrotic injections? Yeah, so I think that's uh, really key to, to avoid any uh, excessive scarring or uh, if you're getting a lot of inflammation or inflamed blebs, 
to inject some 5-FU and you can do that quite quite uh, readily in the early postoperative phase to control that, uh, that scar tissue formation. And um, mitomycin C can also be used uh, prophylactically or uh, just at the time of needlings um, to help uh, avoid any fibrosis in the uh, later stages. Yeah, I, I find myself using 5-FU um, maybe a bit more than I did a few years ago, especially if in the early postoperative period, if we find excessive vascular tortuosity or a thickening of the bleb, uh, you know, prophylactic uh, injections I think are helpful. And we often will do it two or three times in the first month to be, to be sure we can address that. Now, what about dealing with um, early acute IUP elevation in the first you know, days or weeks after the procedure? TC, what are your thoughts about diagnosing and managing that? I think, um, first of all, I think it's important to determine if this IUP spike is happening in the first day, first days, or maybe like weeks after. Because if it's happening in the first days, I would suspect more of a device obstruction than a blood fibrosis. But if this IOP spike would happen a few weeks after surgery, then I would suspect more of blood fibrosis. And of course, if we if we think that the patient has, um, if, if we think that uh, there is any obstruction in the device, we should consider a top flush. Or if we consider, if we think that there's any blood fibrosis, then we would consider needling. So I agree, Tissy. I think, you know, when you have an early IOP rise, this is typically a lumen obstruction, which you can consider uh, whether it's an internal lumen obstruction, for example, blood, pigment, inflammation, uh, viscoelastic, if it's used, um, or external compression, perhaps where the angulation of scleral tunnel has been more acute than we like, and the implant may be pinched. And a digital ocular compression or massage in early postoperative period can be very helpful to relieve internal obstructions. And I recommend that. I agree. If it's pressure is high in the first few days, a flush can be done again with a 23 gauge thin wall cannula, as, as George mentioned earlier, interoperatively, um, that can be done ab internal to the anterior chamber as an option to do that as well. So, uh, those are, are good thoughts about uh, early pressure spikes, but as Tissy said, um, you know, when the pressure elevates later in the postoperative period, weeks to months later, this is often due to bleb fibrosis. And so, in those situations, uh, George, what are your thoughts in terms of managing bleb fibrosis? Yeah, so, so fortunately, we don't need to needle that often. In uh, the published study uh, by uh, Schlenker et al. and Durr et al., um, we have the, with the uh, standalone study and the refractory study, uh, we found needling rates of about uh, 5 to 10%. Um, and the way that we go about these is by using a, a 25 gauge uh, MVR blade that has cutting on both sides of the blade to be able to sweep under and over the implant to cut that, fib that fibrotic tissue that is, that is formed under the implant and over it and sweep it posteriorly into the fornix. And this is really something that uh, allows for, um, you know, uh, trying to reestablish flow uh, at the tip of the implant. Um, they are more challenging uh, compared to other um, a needling, for example, a trabeculectomy. Um, but if you use like those bigger, uh, those bigger uh, needles as the NVR blades, for instance, it makes it a little bit uh, easier to cut through that, that, that thick uh, scar tissue. And um, also when, when that doesn't work, or if you're uh, a few months out and, and you've had a little bit of a rougher post-operative course with the, with the fibrosis, uh, then you may need to revise these implants uh, which is also in, in uh, the two uh, studies that I, I stated earlier, around 2 to 3% uh, 
where you basically open up conjunctiva and you uh, dissect off all that fibrotic tissue over and under the implant, uh, add some mitomycin C and then close uh, in a single closure. Yeah, I mean, you know, our studies have shown about a, you know, a less than 10% needling rate. And I will say that needling uh, the microshunt is more challenging than needling a trabeculectomy where you can needle under the flap and enter the AC. You know, you got to kind of visualize well enough and ideally, you know, sweep underneath the implant and then swipe toward the fornix and literally like use it at cutting edge. And that's why the MVR, uh, 25 gauge MVR blade, as George said, is helpful to do that because it's got a side cutting edge. It's a lancet blade rather than a, a beveled needle tip. But uh, we try that usually. I have to say, um, you know, we're probably about a 60, 70% success rate on needling as we've shown. Um, and then if that isn't enough, then we do do a bleb revision, which is an open revision procedure. We have had, you know, we've had reasonable success uh, in doing the bleb revisions in this manner. And we typically open conge and remove the scar, reestablish flow, flush if we need to, and can use other adjuncts as well, particularly mitomycin C. So uh, I always try to revise and I think it's, it's been a useful tool postoperatively. Listen, it's been a fantastic conversation with both of you. I thank you, uh, Tissy, for joining us. I thank you, George, for joining us. You two have had some of the most uh, wide experiences with the microshunt and uh, sharing your pearls are important. What we've discussed are important preoperative considerations to promote success, some of the important critical surgical pearls, and then some postoperative uh, suggestions as well. Uh, the microshunt uh, has been an, an important tool in our chest uh, of options for patients, uh, reaching target pressures typically down in that 13 to 12 millimeter range as we've shown in our publications with typically less postoperative visits and a more uh, rapid visual recovery and a stable pressure control, which makes it as an option for patients who need a significant pressure drop in this manner. I hope these uh, pros have been helpful for you. And as anything else, uh, a big part of surgical success is the surgeon himself. And we hope this has been helpful. So thank you very much for joining us. Mm -hmm.